the CRO Spotlight Podcast. Powered by the Sales IQ Network. Hi, and welcome to the CRO Spotlight Podcast. I'm Warren Zeno from the CRO Collective, and I'm here with my co-host, Lupe Feld. Hey, Lupe. Hey, Warren. This is Lupe Feld, and I'm glad to be here with you. So this podcast is really for aspiring CROs and CEOs and current CROs whom are interested in learning from not only us, but the great guests that we're going to have. We're here to tell you that there's other areas of the business that can drive revenue, and we're going to look and inspect and come up with some great ideas for us to bring in as much revenue as we can and drive some meaningful change for the business. So tune in. We have some exciting opportunities coming up for really amazing conversations and any B2B leaders, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So thanks for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you. Okay, and welcome to this new episode of the CRO Spotlight Podcast. I'm really excited very excited today for our guest, the esteemed Mr. Sangram Vadre. Hi, Sangram. Nice to meet you. Warren, I'm glad we're able to make it. Let, let's create it's some ruckus. A, exactly. It's, it's about time. First, let me just introduce you a little more formally so everyone kind of knows you know, who you are. Most people do in, that are probably listening to this, but I'll formalize it a bit. So you, you're the best-selling author of the book, Move, the four-question go-to-market framework, which I, I love the book, and we'll talk about it. Okay, you also started or co-founded Terminus in 2014, and you've been teaching the business of marketing and signature frameworks, and you're an international keynote speaker. You're named one of the top 21 B2B marketing influencers in the world, and you're also the host of your own uh, business podcast called Flip My Funnel, which we can promote as well. So welcome, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. So, so Warren, thanks for the intro. Uh, mm-hmm. As you probably have heard from folks like John Maxwell, he he shared something that this was probably last last two years ago where he shared when I was at an event where he said, if you want to impact people, you need to talk about your failures because if you only talk about your, your success, which is a lot of bios are all about, then you can impress it, but you can't really impact it. And yep. that really got close to my heart. So to just by, by, by that way, I just want to share a couple of things on a professional level. I've started, tried to start a few companies and they busted. They didn't go anywhere. They you know, lost money, lost time, lost a ton of things along the way, which sometimes it's it's hard to be in the bio. And then also in the as, as part of building Terminus, I almost got divorced because I didn't realize and recognize the important uh, importance of important things. So as I'm starting a new company now, I, I think about became, becoming really intentional about all those things. So so there, there you have it a little bit more on the on the personal side as people start thinking about it. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, my, I, I certainly know, I can tell you, my, and most people I think would say this too, I, there are a few people that don't. My, my failures way outpace my successes, yeah. right? And I actually look at my career as like a series of mistakes that led me to things that I ended up working well, you know? So I appreciate that. I I agree completely. And I think not enough people talk about that. I think it's an important topic. So let's talk a bit about the reason why I wanted you here, right? So you know a little bit about what we're doing, right? We're trying to help re kind of calibrate the way people look at the chief revenue officer role and have companies have a much different perspective on how revenue operations work today in the modern marketplace, specifically in the areas where you need to integrate all these different functions. And, you know, the reason why I was so attracted to your your book and stuff is that you're, you're one of the few people, like there's a bunch of people in the, let's call it LinkedIn ecosystem that I read and I'm, okay, these people fall into the world of people whom are philosophically aligned with me 
or I'm physically a lot with them. I'd probably be more less, less, more humbly. And so we seem to kind of be on the same page about the way we're looking at the world, right? Is it's about you're you're one of four people that I think of. Okay, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I, well, look, I don't know. I might be wrong about everything, but you know, regardless, it's it's you fit into the model. And here's what I mean. You know, there's definitely a awareness right now, which so many things I want to ask you about about a couple of things. One is how, you know, the SDR model, right? And this kind of sales automation model is sort of creating other problems and it comes with costs. How the chief revenue officer role needs to have a greater focus on the entire revenue funnel and not just sales. Mm. And how that issue is impacting companies. And also how CEOs need to look at their revenue model, their whole business differently today in order to grow and scale. You talk a lot about go-to-market strategies and how what those things are. And I, I personally think most of those things fall under the purview of a, of a CRO at a certain stage of a company. So if you don't mind, just if you could just overview, what's the core sort of general philosophy of not just your book, but your business? And how do you view the world today from the perspectives that I just referenced? Yeah. So a few things that, that come to mind. One is, and I, I recently talked about this on, on LinkedIn as well, is that I see most companies hire and fire CMO and CRO roles every 12 to 18 months in the hopes that that's going to fix their go-to-market strategy. Yeah. And it is the most hilarious things to watch over and over again. And it, 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 nobody's thinking about the cost it takes to, to onboard somebody new and, and the change that organization goes to. And everybody's just doing it because they just don't know what to do. And they just don't know what the next move should be. So you must not be working. And, and you know, something got to change and there's pressure from the board. So you got to do something to show that you are more in it and you are making tough decisions and letting go of people seems to be the easiest thing you could possibly do. And that's what you do. And I, I feel like that's one of the hardest lessons that I've learned over the period of Terminus and other companies that I've advised and being on board of is like, no, that's not. Your go-to-market strategy is not figuring out getting an, another CMO or CRO and see that's going to fix. Your go-to-market is a process, not a strategy, but a process. A strategy would be like you go on a, a weekend retreat and you come up with like the OKRs and you figure out where you need to be. That, that's your strategy, your corporate strategy. But go-to-market is a process in the service of that strategy, which means you need to be ready to change and adapt to that on a daily basis, almost making decisions where are we going to partner or are we going to acquire? Are we going to hire salespeople? Are we going to go more on marketing? Are we going to do, do agency thing or are we going to go in Europe? Like all of these are go-to-market decisions. But as you said, a lot of times people would slim it down to SDR function or slim it down to the sales outreach activities or slim it down to even product launches as a go-to-market launch. And it's way broader than that in, in the way I've interviewed and experienced in the last 10 years. Yeah, that's so great. And and I, I agree. I speak about this a lot, which you're articulating really well here is there seems to be this sort of almost symptomatic and tactical way that these companies are being led. There's very little, I don't know say very little, but there's not enough systems thinking strategy thinking about how things fit together, right? Much like you look at an engine of a car, right? Which is a very complex, complex thing. You know, there's the carburetor and then there's the turbine and then there's the intake valve. And then there's the, you know, I mean, there's so many different parts. You certainly can look at the engine when it's broken and see which pieces, but when you're building an engine, you have to understand the way all those things work together to create the outcome you want. And I think that 
I don't know why. I'd like to hear your thoughts on why do you think this is like, why is it that they're firing symptomatically the guy to get rid of him? that, that that'll fix the problem, or this is a marketing issue they think, or this is a sales issue they think, as opposed to system problem or a strategic problem. What do you think it is that's going on that's happening right now? Well, there's probably a lot of things, but one thing that 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 I feel pretty summarizes in this in this quote by James Clear that you may have heard about, and I'm you know I love this quote. I actually talk about this with my family as as a thing as well, but also in business is that you don't rise to the level of your goals because everybody has great goals. Everybody wants to have a great company. No, there's nobody saying, I want to create the least profitable company in the world. Like, no, no, nobody says that. I want to create a team that doesn't perform at a high performing level. Like, nobody, nobody wakes up in a way. So everyone wants to have, or have very similar goals. If you, if you put all CEOs in a room and say, what do you want? You want to grow. You want to grow profitably. You want to grow at scale. You want to be efficient. Like everybody's going to say the same thing. So then why is it? And, and his second part of the quote is really the reason for it. The first part is you don't, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You actually fall to the level of your systems. And that to me is the, the, the crux of this whole thing is that people, everybody has the goals, but they don't know what the system, what the framework is, or what, the, what, what is the way to ask questions, to, to prod and understand more. How do you make a, a set of decisions on and get your team truly aligned as opposed to being just right, just truly aligned on certain things. That is a, a mental framework that most companies lack. Um, and, and, and without a framework, it's, an, it's not a rigid framework. It's, it's, it's a, without a framework of, of mindset around what growth really means and how what is market is, or how do I think about efficient operations? These are all systems. These are, this is not a very complicated thing, we make it complicated because we are just trying to make knee-jerk reactions and decisions on, on a lot of these levels. So given the amount of money there is right now getting poured into companies, I mm -hmm. think it seems much more what people are easily able to do. They think it's the hard thing, but it's actually they're making the easiest decision of letting go of people or doing certain things as opposed to fully jumping into it. So the quote around, you don't rise to the level of your goals, but you fall to the level of your systems is almost something every company should have as part of their, their overarching strategy and conversation at their offsites. I, I agree. I so agree. I think you're right. I mean, that's a human condition, yeah. you know, because I, I certainly aspire to do a lot of things that my own systems are limiting me to do them. I think we can all say that, right? Yeah. So, okay. So what might be then, more practically speaking, I guess a question for us to ask before for ask this question is, what stage of an organization would you think that this sort of thing would be most effective for? Is it like the day I found an organization or is it after there's some level of complexity? Like when is the a point of view or the perspective that you're espousing, when is it most impactful and utilized from a practical standpoint? The the it just gets increasingly hard as, as as the company grows and more complexity comes in. I remember this conversation with the uh, with the ex the last CEO of HubSpot who, who gave a quote for the book for the move, and he said, "Look, it's like a product. Like when I asked him, what what is go to market to you? You have started the company from zero, and you have taken all the way to public. So you've gone through all the phases of of the, you know building a company. You have right. you know hundred thousand plus customers. You're a billion in valuation, but you started with zero. Like you, you so you you've gone through it. And and I asked him like, who owns go to market? Like that that was a key question we did and asked as part of the research across all the CEOs, CMOs, venture capitalist interview, hundreds of interviews we did. 
And he said, without blinking, Warren, without blinking, he said, I own it. And I'm like, come on, Brian, like, you, you know, you're the CEO of the company. I understand the buck stops at you and, and maybe that's what you mean, but no, no, who in your organization owns go to market? He's like, Sanger, I, I want you to be very, very clear about this thing. There's only three things I as the CEO own. I own the vision for the company, which is I need to articulate that to my teams, to my employees, to my customers, to my partners, to my investors. I need to be the most articulate and I, most excited person about our vision, where we're going. I have to do that a hundred times a day. And I have to do that. This, that's my job. The second part is the culture. If we can get the right people, and if we don't build a culture where people can feel thriving and, and feeling like they are valued, then we, no matter how great our product is, we're never going to be able to outpace everything that's happening in the market. But the third thing, which is, he said, the first two are sexy. The first two are fun. The first two are hard, but but still, still kind of what people expect you to do. And you kind of have joy for those two things. The third that I wish he wished I, he wouldn't own it, but is absolutely his responsibility is go to market. And that was very eye-opening to me. He's like, yeah, I own go to market. Who? And he, he asked this question, who is making decisions like acquisition versus partnership? Like, how would anybody else make? I, only I have view into all of these things. Huh. Who's going to make decision between where the budget goes and all like it is like it all comes down to people again make go to market very myopic as you said in the opening. And he's like, no, no, it is a CEO's responsibility to make go to market decisions with team leaders to help them drive it. Right, let's talk about it. it's really interesting because. I mean, is the CEO's job to be the head of go-to-market or make go-to-market strategies throughout the entire lifestyle of the entire organization? Or is there a point where that CEO hands off that to somebody else? Or I, Because this is something I run into. I mean, yeah. I, my view my view would be that it's the chief revenue officer's role to you know, maintain and own the go-to-market because it's a revenue-based sort of a function is the go-to-market. It's, it's all around sailing, marketing, and customer success which is what the CRO's purview is. You're, you're saying it's the CEO, which I, I agree the CEO sort of needs to be, you know, the senior sponsor of everything in the company. Yeah. But you're saying specifically it's the go-to-market that's the CEO's purview. What do you make the relationship between a CEO and a CRO in a, let's say, mature organization where there's, let's say, over 50 million in revenues and there's a complexity level where CRO is really necessary. Oh, and, and we're, we're experiencing that right now. Even at Terminus, literally right, right around those data points, and 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 he obviously has experienced it at multiple levels. And he's like, right. look, the, the if the CRO, and, and this is also what our research showed, if the CRO truly owns marketing, sales, and customer success for periods of time, typically most companies have in and out of like 12 months, 18 months, and people move around. Sometimes they have only marketing and CS or sales and marketing. So very few companies are actually practicing true CRO role based on everything that I'm seeing. They, they call people CROs, but they really don't give them all the CROs. But, but in his point of view, even the product is part of go-to-market. Like what new acquisition are you going to do? That is not what a CRO can make a decision on. What, okay. where else do you need to grow and scale? Should you go on an agency partnership model or do you want to actually do an acquisition or do you want to build? Like you, a CRO won't be able to make that decision because they are trying to hit the numbers and quota for the month, for the quarter, and their job depends on it. So in many ways, CRO is going to be an incredibly vitally important part of making go-to-market decisions, but it's still going to be a part of it. It's right. still going to be part of it. A lot of times the view that a CRO will have is probably the broadest of all and, and, and probably the most important of all. But still the CEO has to 
truly own across, at least from, and I'm not a public company CEO, so I can speak for him, but I'm using Brian's words for this. It's like, he's like, I'm a public company CEO. I don't, I can't imagine anybody else owning go-to-market, especially at this level. So it, it increasingly becomes complex and it is increasingly become important to own it because in the early stage, Warren, as you know, you may just have one product and one SKU and one thing to sell in a one way. The CRO can own that actually, as a matter of fact, in the early days, it would make sense for a, a sales leader to own it. You had five products and how they integrate. Now you got to have a product leader involved in making a lot of these decisions yep. because the CRO is like, I don't know, you tell me what to sell. So CEO ultimately ends up becoming the person who has to make this call. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting because this is a new perspective. Um, so let's back up for a minute for the purposes of, I'm sure everyone knows what this is, but your definition of this would be very interesting. How do you define go-to-market? Well, so it's a, it's a broader definition in the book. So I'll, I'll just read through it. Sure. It's literally yeah, in front of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so one is, the first part is, is go-to-market is a transformational process, which we talked about. It's a process. It's not a strategy. A lot of people keep talking about strategy. No, it's a corporate strategy is a strategy. Go-to-market strategy, it actually is a misnomer. Go-to-market is a process. And I think there is a huge mindset shift in it, as we, as we talked about. So it's a transformational process. And it is all about accelerating your path to market. So whatever market it is, it is regional, international, the different product services. It's really a path to having great market space. And then you're doing that with high-performing revenue teams. And this is the part where we have, you know, we talked about in line on is the revenue team has to be, it's not a sales or marketing or only CS. It is sales, marketing, CS, and product. All of that really involved is those are your product actually is a big part of your revenue team. And ultimately your customers would never say, oh, your marketing sucks or your sales suck. They would say your company sucks if, if, you're, if, if you're not giving them a connected customer experience. So to, to say it out fully, go-to-market is a transformational process for accelerating your path to market with high-performing revenue teams delivering a connected customer experience. So that's the fullest definition of it. And I'm glad you called that out because when you talk, when we, when, nobody's going to remember this. So it, you know, it's in the book to, to take a look at it. But the reason it, it makes sense is because that once you say that definition, everybody takes a step back and say, okay, so who do you think should own this transformational process of path to market with bringing high-performing revenue teams together to create a connected customer experience? Who in the company should be responsible for it? And when you pose it that way, I think the role of a CEO starts emerging as the true contender for it. Look, you, no, no one can argue. I think you're right. I think that yeah, it's interesting because this so much has to do with stages because you said it before, right? So you have a lot of different situations, but typically the ones you and I probably encounter most are these sort of founder-led companies, right? Someone who created something or they have engineering expertise and they built something that's really great for the marketplace and they have some business sense and they want to bring it to market. So they have that one product, like you said, it's simple enough. They get some customers as their pre-revenue at this point. They're just trying to get customer fit, right? They want to find out if their product actually solves the problem. They want to identify the people that are going to buy it. They want to identify the people that, you know, this makes the most sense for. That's the product market fit component, right. which I know never ends, but yeah. it's sort of the beginning part where at least you know where your, your target is, right? Your, let's call it your, what do you call it again? Not your, not your uh, TAM. Yeah. TRM, total relevant market. Your total relevant market. Well, yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. Yep. So what's your distinction between a total addressable market and total relevant, relevant market? Relevant yes. market. 
Yeah, it, it's a it's a big distinction in in many ways. So when you think about, let's define the stages for for sure. sake of everyone yeah, listening great. in. So so in the book, based on the research, we found that most companies are in, in these three stages: problem market fit, product market fit, and platform market fit. So the three P's: problem, product, platform. And and you express just just shared the whole problem and product. But there's a third stage: the platform market fit, which is literally the place everybody wants to end up at the end of the day to to and and we'll talk we could talk about why but in the early stage of problem market fit you're just trying to get a pulse for somebody to buy your product and you'll be fine because you're trying to figure out is the problem real is somebody going to buy it is their marketing big enough you you're just testing it out so yes you're going to try it's founder led to your point and at that point you're probably just looking to grow ARR Right, your annual recurring right. revenue, just, That's just right. basic. You don't even think you want to show easy. somebody that there's someone yeah. buying it on a rel- yeah. relatively consistent basis, and yeah. you know you can show that there's some predictability to it. Right, it's, it's simply that, and and you could probably get to it's a million, two million, five million revenue yep. just just in that stage. As a matter of fact, our research showed Warren, which was very shocking and surprising to me. I'm curious if it is for you. We saw that you could be a twenty million dollar company, and still be a problem market. Fit company. I, I I don't question that at all. That makes yeah. perfect sense to me. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the case because you know you're talking about this in in a way that probably a lot of the people that are in market don't think about it. They may not make that distinction, but yeah. it, they probably are in that distinction without really being aware of it. They may think that they've sort of got product market fit, but in fact, they really haven't done the diligence they can to cert- certainly determine if the problem is in fact one that is as defined as they think it is. I, as a matter of fact, I'd say that's a problem in that you you probably see this better than me, people in their own mind jumping ahead stage when they really are, in fact, in an earlier stage of that, that process. And yeah. they're operating like they're in prob- pro- product market fit stage when in fact the they're time. not. Yeah. yeah, all the time. As a matter of fact, the reason, the a telltale signs, if you will, of that, are you in a problem market fit or product market is quite simply, are you selling the same stuff? over and over again? Are you servicing the same use cases? If the answer is, yep, we got 80% of our customers have the same exact use case, then you are clearly in a product market fit. But if you reach $20 million, but every time it's a customized solution, you got to put integrations in place. There's some degree of sort of being a little bespoke every time. Then that's what makes it, you're still in the problem market fit because you truly can't add bodies and and, and scale to anything like that. To, To be in a product market fit, you at least have to answer that, all right, 80% 80% of the time, I know what the size of my deal is going to be, how long it's going to take, who's going to buy, what stage they're going to be in. Like the, those, That's what makes businesses product market fit. That's what's repeatable because you can hire more salespeople to do the same thing over and just keep yep. expanding. And make, make, makes perfect sense. Makes right? perfect sense. So, so let's talk about the stages. So now you're in the product, the problem market fit, which is like you said, now we're trying to find out how to identify that really specific problem that we know has this quantifiable value for the customer at yes. this price repeatedly, yeah. right? Yeah. And then that's when you do that and you see 80% of your deals follow that particular model, then you are in a, in a you could be a $5 million business and, a, and, and truly be in a product market fit, but you could still at the same time, if you don't have repeatable use cases, that's the key phrase, the use cases and repeatable use cases, and you're doing bespoke, then that's where a lot of people fail and, and miscategorize themselves into product market fit just because of the revenue numbers they might be in. And at that time, so in, in the in, from a, a go-to-market perspective, in the early stage, problem market fit, really what you care about is ARR because you're just trying to sell more and, and get more at-bats. 
when you get to product market fit, the real thing that 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 is what that causes companies to have this valley of death that that will pull them back, that will never let you be a product market fit company. And we'll talk about that in a second. Is GRR right? Your gross retention rate. You you, you now got a bunch of companies. Let's say eighty percent of the people are buying, so you already got got the buying motion right, but you're not able to retain them. You're not able to show ROI to them. They love what you're doing. They get excited about it. They love your marketing, love your sales. And but when it comes to renewal, they're like, I don't know how to show ROI to my boss. And and a lot of companies fall into this romanticizing event of their life. It's like we're at 10 million, awesome. And they have a big trough coming to them with a $3 million not renewal. So GRR is a really the, the what's that's what they should be watching. And to your point, a lot of companies start watching it too early. It, it, no, you, unless you have a couple of years or one year of customers on your product, you won't really measure that. So GRR becomes really important. And then from there on, you go to platform market fit, which is the most curious, most amazing place for companies to go because that's what, what it means is twofold. One, you're actually going from a single product company to multi-product company, which is why you're a platform now. By the way, Warren, I see a lot of people, they launch a company, we are a revenue platform. I'm like, you are a feature on an Excel spreadsheet. Like, you know, you know, staff calling yourself a platform. So it's very, right. yep. very sad when I talk to founders they, to tell them the truth around that. But, you know, platform means you have more than one products to sell now. And at least one of the products is your product market fit. And the other one, now you're figuring it out how, if it becomes a platform. But also, this is the exciting part. The second fold of this thing is the market. Until now, in problem market and product market, your market was pretty much still the same. You're still figuring out in the same. Let's say you're selling to the marketing organizations. You're still selling to marketing. But then at this point, when you have go from product to platform, you also get, you earn the right to expand your market, which is what we see with Salesforce and HubSpots of the world where they were selling, Salesforce was selling to sales and they earned the right with their platform to increase the market. So they could sell to marketing, sales, customer success, developers, and all that stuff. You, you don't start there, but you end up there because that's where you start feeling the most important metric in SaaS, which is the NRR, the net retention rate. So probably market fit, you think about ARR. And if you can get that going, then you can get to product market fit, which gives you GRR. That's what that's the monster you need to be thinking about the behind the door. And then as you move towards platform market fit, the big monster that you need to really make sure that it doesn't eat you up is, is your NRR. Got it. That's great. Really helpful. So I suspect, and I know because I read your book, that there are processes and systems that companies can put in place to help ensure that those things are being looked at properly and companies are being managed effectively against those growth stages. What, what, if you don't mind, just kind of describe a bit like what those, some of those things look like if I'm a founder of a company or I'm a CEO of a company or even a CRO of a company, which is probably a yeah. appropriate for this conversation, and what that relationship is to those processes and the systems and what are they? Yeah, I mean, it's. I'll just point to the move framework. I think that, that's yeah. the best sure. thing we, we yeah. have seen at work. I've seen in board meetings now, I've seen in decks uh, of companies and presentations. So it's, it's, it's fun to watch this. But the move framework is very simple. And, and Warren, when we started the research for this, we interviewed so many people and we had about 51 questions that we were asking people as part of it. Like who owns it? What do you mean by GTM? What are the metrics? All these things. And it came down to, thankfully for you, me, and everybody in the audience came down to these four questions that everybody is asking. And, if you, and the answer for this, by the way, are going to be different based on the stage of your business, but the questions are the same. That's the beauty of it. 
The questions are the same, but the answers will be different. And we'll walk through what that means in a second for the stage of the business you're in. So the four are the move framework really is about who you should market and for market. Your second is operations. What do you need to do to manage it effectively, operate effectively your business? The O, whereas the rev ops and marketing ops, sales ops, all those comes in place. The velocity, which is the common question we all ask, when can we scale? When can we scale faster? And how do we do that, right? So that's the velocity, which is in the book, we go in detail around how do you figure out your velocity factors for employee ramp, technology ramp, sales ramps, all those things. And expansion, which is all about where can we grow the most? So market, operations, velocity, and expansion. And as an example, you think about operation, let's just take that as an example. When I said the questions are the same, but the answers are different. Operations-wise, in the early stage that we talked about in a problem market fit, you might just need a finance person might be doing all of your operations, or maybe you have a marketing operations at tops, and that, that's pretty much it. That's all you needed to run your single product, just figuring out solution for it. So that, that's all metrics you might need. So the question is still, how do I operate effectively? Hire a finance guy or an ops person to do it. As you get to a product market fit, Question still remains, how do I operate effectively? Well, the answer for that one would be, well, at this point, you need to figure out if you can have sales and marketing ops. That's when most companies hire sales ops, marketing ops, sales enablement, all of these people to align marketing sales conversations because this is where you're doing probably ABM more than ever before. And then as you go to platform market fit, you ask the same question, how do I operate effectively? This is the stage where most companies would have, if not, should have, revenue operations, because that's really when you have multiple products and you need to be able to look at a go-to-market dashboard to see how each product is doing, not have every different silo reporting on their numbers. You want a centralized way of reporting, understanding, tracking, and supporting those numbers. So question's still the same, but the answers changes based on the stage of the business. That's interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is that, because I believe too, that the sort of, let's say, you know, event trigger for a CRO is a point at which there's marketing and sales and customer success complexity where yeah. silos are starting to be created and a CRO needs to sort of set systems up for those three functions to start operating together. And that's when I think even maybe even some minor RevOps activity needs to be taking place because there's data that needs to support the three of those functions working together. And there needs to be somebody doing that. You're saying, this is interesting. It's, I never really thought about this. You're saying that the CRO appointment, it aligns well with a product market fit. Yeah. hundred percent. At least in my view. And yeah, I no, it makes perfect sense to me. I'm curious to know, what do you think? And I, it's probably impossible to answer, but I'm saying generally in your research, what size of a company is usually at that stage? How much revenue are we talking about usually? Now, that's that's exactly where my head goes when I think about these is like, I think sub 10 million is really a bad place. Like you know, if you're a less than $10 million to hire too many C-level people, a CMO, a CRO, I would say, unless you're a co-founder, you shouldn't need it. You don't need a C-level title. You, you need, I think about people in, in, in a, a, like as dreamers, doers, and drivers. That's my mental framework of it. You talk about frameworks. I love, love frameworks. Yeah, me too. So mm -hmm. early stage, you're like, you have a bunch of dreamers and, and, and early and early doers. Like that's what you need. You have a dreamer founders who are trying to do, and you need a bunch of doers to test different things and do it. You don't need drivers because your dreamers are already driving a whole bunch of things. Right. And then at some point about 10 million to 15 million, you come to a point where all of a sudden you have a marketing, you have you only had sales, but now you have marketing and now you have customers, so you need customer success. 
All of a sudden, things that work stop working and you need to figure out what's going on. All of a sudden, your sales cycle becomes longer because you're increasing the size of your deal and your investors are saying that increase your ACV, increase your ACV. So you're increasing it, which, which pushes you into from mid-market to enterprise. And you're like, I don't even have a product that supports that. So you go through all that and then you all of a sudden, the, the competitor monster pops in that you did not think about. And then COVID hit like, all of these things hit and then you're like, okay, I need an adult in the room who could work on the sales thing so I don't have to think about territory and quota management and making sure people are saying the same stuff and there's a first call deck, like all these things that you go through. It's impossible yep. to for a founder or early stage uh, leaders to continue to do that so, like after 10 million. So 10 million is really where it becomes interesting. Yep, I agree. It's great. You're, you're confirming a lot of things that I've said, that I'm assuming, and it makes a lot of sense. I think that there's a inflection point, you know, or critical mass point at around that much money where, you know, a company of that size needs certain functions in place with layers. And those layers, they bring levels of complexity that you can't manage anymore. You need somebody to step in whom understands all that stuff. So then I guess my next question to you would be, so you're talking to a CRO who is being put into that situation. So you've got a CRO who's being hired. Let's say it's a 15, you know, MRR, 15 ARR company, 15 million. They're the first CRO of the company and their job is to kind of do what you and I just described. What might be some of the things that you'd say to a CRO in that position that would be helpful for them to be looking out for, thinking about, to succeed and not be like you and I said in the beginning, the guy that gets fired 12 months later <laughs> because the CEO is not happy anymore. What's the right, not right, but what are some of the things and functions and methods and strategies that they can employ to ensure that they kind of break through that two, three year mark and succeed in the role? Well, I got three S's talking about frameworks. I'm all about frameworks. So the three S's that, that I would say people should write down if they get a chance to listen to it while they're in their office or something it, it's it's I think it's been it's paramount for them to at least have these three. One is set expectations at 10 million and between 10 to 15 million or 15 to 25, you are going to be thrown into a whole bunch of things. Somebody's adding a new product, you have new money coming in, you're hiring 15 people all of a sudden. You're gonna be in all world of things and, and at all while all doing all that stuff, you need to hit quota. So it just becomes really, really hard to do it. So you set expectations like when I'm coming in. I'm not going to change everything in 30 days like that. Like everybody forgets that, you know, the timeline. So set pace, set expectations and, and a constantly, like almost every week, you got to set expectations with the board. And I would imagine you mean set them up management and set expectations down management, but it's mostly yeah. up, right? Mostly up, mostly okay, up because it. the rest of the people are expecting change and everything to happen, but they will be fine with that one because you're still at a much smaller size company. They're expecting the change is constant. But upper man, because everybody's like, oh, we're going to have an adult in the room and they're right. going to just take care of everything. Oh, and, my. Yeah, forget yeah, about I, it. And Believe a CRO, me, lifetimes will be put into like, hey, help us with the messaging because you need to sell. So so you end up becoming the the gotcha guy for everything. So set expectations okay. very, very much. So that's the first. Second is simplify. Because at this point, Everything is complicated. Everything is overdone. Everything is, is probably not clear. The pricing, the packaging, the way people go about it. People are just doing willy-nilly at this point. You probably have heroic salespeople who do it, get over you over the month. And, and now you got to simplify stuff so you can have some frameworks, have some scale of, you know, some, some, some framework to create some repeatable process. So simply try to, the goal is to not complicate. 
to simplify. That's you got to really think about. Like my job is to simplify, not complicate stuff, because that's what the other people hate. Like when 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 somebody with a C level comes in, is like, oh, they're going to complicate. No, no, you need to take the red tape out. You need to simplify things. And the third is that you need to run. You need to start setting foundations to have a scalable company. That's your job at that point. It's like, how do I scale this? What do I need to scale this? Do I need to have sales enabled now, right now, as opposed to six months from now? Time, go ahead and hire. If you need RevOps in order for you to know what really is going on. So you need to hire people for scale as opposed to just hiring bodies, another salespeople just for getting to a number. You, you need to make those trade-offs now because later on, it's going to be just complicated. So set expectations, simplify everything and, and, and build everything from a scale perspective. Make those decisions early. That's excellent. Okay, great. Now, conversely, I'm the CEO mm -hmm. and I'm hiring my first CRO. What should a CEO be thinking about in regard to placing and appointing their first chief revenue officer at that stage? Oh man, it's it's probably similar, but they're gonna they're gonna struggle with that for sure because the pressure. I think most people don't empathize with the pressure a CEO really has. Um, you know, I think I think it's a point where CEOs typically have a ton of pressure. They're they're actually they're the most likely to be fired person and scared person in the company. Like most CEOs will never admit that. I have no problem admitting that. You know, they say you are when you are in a founder CEO role, you are actually scared almost. You're fearful of what's going on. You try to create this 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 larger than life persona for yourself that you get it and you're cool. And then you're like at midnight staring at the wall trying to figure out what's going on, what's wrong. Like I've been there. I hope I'm talking to somebody there. So so I feel like you're in that very. It's it's a very vulnerable position, quite frankly. So when you're hiring this, I think it's very easy to almost do the opposite of it. Is like breathe so so heavily. Like okay, we got a CRO now. He's gonna he or she's gonna take care of all of it, and that's just not gonna happen. It's it just gonna take time. So you need to from like a managing expectations sort of thing. Same thing. You have to go through the same exact motion. If you can manage expectations, if you can prioritize the most important thing that you can do for your CRO or any direct reports, as a matter of fact, prioritize the most important things they need to do that quarter. So okay. they just have a clear plan to do it. Otherwise, that's where Monday morning, do this. Monday afternoon, hey, about that. Monday evening, you, the, the, the person is already like, okay, well, what am I doing here? So help prioritize, help the clarity around these things. Yeah, I, it's great. I would ask this. It's probably impossible to ask answer this question definitively, but generally... What should a CEO expect a CRO to do at that stage? Like, what are the things they can realistically count on happening as opposed to, like you said, dreaming of happening? Yeah. So, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's a very hard question. And different, different companies would need different things. Like, for example, if, you, if, if you're a company that's going to be enterprise ready, that's what you want to build, then the yep. expectations from the CRO is like, well, you know, are the people over here, are we hiring the crew that will help us get ready? And there's probably a lot of dependency on the product and whatnot. But if you're doing a PLG motion where you're a product-led growth company, that's what you're building. And the CRO's job then becomes very different. It's not about closing, doing inbound and outbound on all those things. Like you expect marketing to drive the PLG motion for you, the product to do it by itself. So that sales is all about, okay, we need to convert more faster and at a higher value. How do we do that? So it depends on where it obviously yeah. is, but it's a cop-out answer in some ways. No, no, it's not. I, I, I gave you that out when I first asked it. And I understand that it's a tough one. I, cause what I'm thinking like is, cause you, you said something in your, your first response, which I think is true. And that is 
there is a unexpected, like an, an unrealistic expectation of what I believe a lot of CROs are stepping into in these roles, right? In terms of what it is that the CEO wants or maybe believes is going to be happening now or is going to be possible now with this new new person. Well, and I, I, the advice I give my clients who are aspiring CROs or CROs who are going to these roles is, like you said, it's not even so much just setting expectations. I take it a little bit deeper. It's really more, you got to have a really clear upfront agreement with your boss, right? your new boss, in terms of what's possible, what's not possible, what's achievable, and what what, it, what are the desired outcomes. And the four things I talk about, like frameworks too, is you need to have, my view, you need to have authority, the autonomy, the resources, and the runway to be able to execute as a CRO, or else you're going to be strangled and unable to do the things you need to do. But those four things need to be matched up against what the expectations that you agreed to, right? So it's, you have to have both, right? And I think the failure I see, reason why a lot of these situations have come up, the one like you mentioned when we first started, is they don't do this. Yeah. And so then it becomes the CRO's fault. Like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing and I got to get rid of him and, you know, that sort of thing. But that was because this upfront agreement or, like you said, setting expectations process wasn't deep enough and detailed enough so that there was a way for them to build a framework for how to work together so that it may even be that if that's done at the point at which maybe normally the CEO would think about firing the CRO, he could see that as in fact, we're exactly where we said we were supposed to be. Yeah, Nothing's broken. It it's just that my expectations were on more on point. So I was actually expecting it to be this way. Yeah. That's a different framework, which I think I'm trying to get things to work towards, you know? You, you're so right, Warren, because they, there's also two, two things that I wrote down as, those, as you were saying. One, you know, in the book, The Move, you see there's a squiggly line. Uh, it's not a straight line, meaning that no company, no matter how you look at yeah, it, the this, company, this, this sort of thing doesn't happen, right? Doesn't no. happen. You, right. you, it's year over year. Yes, terminus. We grew like one million in the first five in the second year, fifty. Yes, we grew as a straight line. If you look year over year, but if you look quarter over quarter or month over month, you will see bunch of and then drop and up and and all these things happening that 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 people don't give enough credit for as, as to what 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 the makings of the company is the one. It's never a straight line, it's a squiggly line. So typically when you hire a change agent like that, there's going to be probably a dip that is going to happen in the in the first quarter before it actually gets better. And which is like and, and imagine a CRO walks in, all right, if we have a CRO and the first quarter, you have a dip. Like, so your conference level is down. People are like, what is he doing? We're not, or she doing? Like, we, we're not where we need to be. So that, but that's setting expectations. Like, yeah, there's likely that there will be a dip because you now are re-architecting a lot of things that, that were not even architected to be, begin with. So that's one. And the second part, and goes back to the earlier part, who owns go-to-market? If the CEO owns go-to-market, it is not your CRO's job to own go-to-market. And like I keep saying that, especially as you grow as a bigger company, and 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 again, the part of the go-to-market which includes CRO shouldn't be giving the direction of the product what needs to be done. If that starts happening, then the CRO is doing the CEO's job, and then maybe the CRO should be the CEO, right? Like so, there is a there needs to be business leaders. A CRO is a business leader. A product leader is a business leader. A CMO is a business leader, specializing in those skill set, but they only have certain view of the, the the and puzzle pieces. There's only a certain view to it. So a lot of times when a CEO hires a CRO, they're like, okay, 
he or she is going to take care of all my take care of all my ugly kids and and all those things that just that's what you end up doing and all the skeletons here you go watch all of them clean up put them you, you, no that's that that is the reason why CROs fail because they get overwhelmed too early they're not prepared for the dip as a company and you have over expectations on it and now all of a sudden you're backtracking yep yep I I get it I get it it's so true so. I talk about that upfront, a contract, I call it, you know, which is, I think is key. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really key. So I'm going to, a couple more questions before we sign off because we're running here close to time. One thing I want to know is what are you up to now? I mean, you mentioned already, there's this project you're working on. You've been a little bit sort of quiet about it. Maybe you don't want it to get into too much detail, but is there anything you can share about what you're up to now? Well, I mean, it, it, I'm next, you know, we're, we're just launching the company. We're figuring out right now. So that's why some of it is like, I, you're figuring it out. And this time I'm doing it differently. Like last time I raised over hundred million to build Terminus. We, we built it. It's a new category we built and, 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 we, and it was clearly a product. And then there was a whole thing around it. Now we're actually, I'm thinking of starting and doing something completely opposite. I'm not going to raise a dime. Like I don't want to do that. Go completely okay. different to that. Start with service. So consulting advisory practice around go to market. So we start yep. with that like let's let the cash let the sounds customer like, really sounds like what sounds what I'm doing yeah same yeah, thing yep yeah. mm -hmm. yep start mm -hmm. there and then figure out what the real product is going to be because there are ideas of product but I don't want to just go raise 10 million and 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 then start and just do it I want to practice what I preached in this book and and see how we go so there's a lot of things that I'm trying to figure out it's not there yet to be fully, fully no be about it, but I get it's, it. it's going to be Completely. go to market. Yeah. Well, everyone's excited about it, I'm sure. And then lastly, I want to talk a bit about, you know, how people can get a hold of you and they can listen to you and look more about your book so people can have an action item to follow up on some of these great things you're talking about. So the name of your book, as we already discussed, is called Move. That's M-O-V-E, the four-question go-to-market framework. You can find that on Kindle and all the other, you know, Amazon platforms, I'm sure. And then you also have a, a podcast, which I listen to all the time, Flip My Funnel. I'm assuming that's every Everywhere, right? Spotify, yeah. Apple, et cetera. Yep. You can do, and, and we just renamed and rebranded that to move recently. Oh, um, okay. Because, yeah. Because now it's, it's about go to market and how companies can figure out their next move. So it's the same podcast. If you do look for flip on or move, you should be able to figure it out and find Wonderful. it. And, and, and maybe one thing that I will leave everybody with is, you know, I, every time I do this, I hope there's something that people take away with. And so lately I've been doing this where like, you know, just DM me on LinkedIn. Tell me what is the one thing that gave you an idea or you, that changed something for you uh, that, that would be useful that you're going to practically use. Because I, I try to make sure that every conversation I have is, is practical enough where people can just go do something about it. Uh, and so that's the only gauge of my time and, and hopefully respecting you and your time and, and the audience's time. So just DM me on LinkedIn, let me know, and I will send you a, a copy of my book. Great. No copy, well, like that's a great request. And I'll, I'll tell you what I got out of it. I mean, aside yes. from a lot, the main big takeaway I took was I love this setup framework for a CRO when they first get into the job, the, you know, set expectations, right? And then simplify and then scale. And that's a really wise, really great way to look at the, that, that entry point. So I appreciate you saying that. And you've also, I'm happy to say you confirmed a couple of things that I've been thinking <laughs> about. And so yes. I'm, I'm not an idiot, you know, that's really, <laughs> so that's always nice, but look, I, I can't thank you enough. It's so great talking to you and I'm sure we'll be talking more and I'll be looking out for you. And uh, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you, Warren, for having me. And I hope everybody had got at least one thing from this talk. You got it. All right.